Welcome to Reaching Your Peak, an educational storytelling mini-series of the Elk Talk podcast. This is Corey Jacobson, and today I'm going to be sharing a story from one of my previous do-it-yourself public land elk hunts, and then breaking down a strategy or a tactic that was instrumental in the success of that hunt. Reaching Your Peak is brought to you by Peak Refuel. If you're looking for delicious freeze-dried meals that are made with 100% real ingredients, including premium USDA meats, you've probably already heard of Peak Refuel. Their meals have nearly twice as much protein as the competition, which is important for fueling your body in the backcountry. There's no fillers, no empty calories, just premium nutrition that truly meets the needs of elk hunters. And the taste is second to none. My personal favorites are their homestyle chicken and rice and the beef stroganoff, but they have a huge selection of other incredible meals like chicken alfredo, biscuits and gravy, chicken coconut curry, sweet pork and rice, mountain berry granola, and a whole lot more. If you want to taste the difference, visit peakrefuel.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 15% and get free shipping on your next order. Welcome to another episode of Reaching Your Peak. And a continued thank you for all the comments and the messages that you're sending in. We really appreciate that feedback and we appreciate the questions. So keep them coming. Just go to the Elk Talk podcast website and go to the contact link and you can send your suggestions, questions, feedback uh, through that. So I hope you're enjoying these elk hunting stories and the lessons that accompany them. I know it's been fun for me to go back and not only revisit some of these stories, but to reflect a little deeper on some of the nearly forgotten or overlooked details from these hunts. I have a pretty good visual in my mind of each of my hunts, but there's so many details that I'm realizing now that I've glossed over. And it's been really educational for me to go back and correlate some of these lessons learned with these different hunts. We're now officially inside of three months until this year's elk season. I hope everyone's preparations are underway and going well because it's going to be here before we know it. But to help us pass the time between now and elk season, I have another elk hunting story to share. I've been an elk caller since before I was old enough to hunt elk. I can still vividly remember calling a nice five-point bull into a skid road I was hiking down with my mom when I was just 10 years old, back when the legal hunting age here in Idaho was 12. My mom had drawn a cow tag that year, so calling in a bull to her didn't produce a notch tag, but it did stoke that fire that had already been lit within me for calling elk. Elk are such incredible animals, and I'm sure I'd probably still have some desire to hunt them, even if they didn't bugle, but it's the fact that they do bugle that makes it impossible for me to stop thinking about them just about every day of the year. I've been accused of calling too much. I've been told that I call too aggressively. Heck, I've even been told that I'm personally to blame for all the elk becoming call shy and unresponsive to calls, but in all of these accusations, one fact remains, and that is, I love calling elk. 
So when Randy Newberg called me up early in the spring of 2016 and told me he had a challenge for me, if I was up to accepting it, I said yes before he even fully explained what the challenge actually was. There was a unit in New Mexico that he had hunted a couple of times previously, and he wanted to take me down to that unit and see if I could call in an elk there. He had experienced success hunting in that unit before, but it had always been by spot and stock. He was pretty certain the elk that were in that unit were impossible to call in, and I'm not sure if he wanted to take me there to set me up to fail, or if it was just to see if his calling was what was keeping the elk from coming in. But either way, I was 100% in. Aside from the obstacle of trying to call in uncooperative elk there in that unit, there was one more unknown that stood in our way, and that was getting a tag. Randy warned me that there were only, I think, three tags uh, for non-residents in that unit and that our odds of drawing two of those tags together on a party application was going to be really low. But we applied for that unit as our first choice hunt, and then we waited for the draw results. It was several weeks later when I got a phone call from Randy, and he was pretty excited and in a bit of disbelief, I think, but he verified we had beat the odds, and we'd drawn our first choice elk tags in New Mexico. And as we concluded that conversation, he said something to the effect of, you'd better get your bugle tube warmed up now if you want to have any chance of calling in elk down there in September. Challenge accepted. (laughs) I work really hard to keep my elk hunting confidence from turning into arrogance. Well, it's probably more accurate to say that the elk work really hard to keep my elk hunting confidence from turning into arrogance. I've been humbled by elk every single season I've hunted them, all 35 plus seasons now. I walk into the first day of every elk hunt filled with anticipation, but also with some uncertainty, knowing that there are a lot of factors that are outside my control to ever assume any hunt's going to go smoothly. But I might have allowed my confidence to possibly slip dangerously close to arrogance, as I assured Randy that I could call in an elk in any unit, anywhere, in September. My strategy of covering a lot of ground and finding the one, the one bull that's fired up and bugling on that particular day that we're hunting, had been a pretty consistent strategy over the past 20 elk seasons. In fact, over the past 20 seasons leading up to that hunt, I'd only had one elk tag that had gone unfilled. Coincidentally, that one unsuccessful hunt occurred the last time Randy and I had hunted elk together. But this time was going to be different, and I was certain of that. I was going to prove to Randy that you can call in elk anywhere and show him that it's just a matter of finding the right elk. And in a place like the Gila in New Mexico, it would probably be like shooting fish in a barrel. It's probably worth mentioning also that we would be hunting during a full moon and in drought conditions and in some pretty extreme heat. But... I had been challenged, and in addition to wanting to prove my calling abilities to Randy, he'd also awakened my competitive side as well. Around the same time that we found out we'd drawn our New Mexico tags, I got another phone call from my good friend David Brinker. And at the time, Brinker was the marketing guy for Sitka, and he'd been brainstorming a film project that he wanted to produce to spotlight the history of modern-day elk calling. And the film would be called The Linguist and Brinker wanted to send a camera guy to follow me around that fall 
to illustrate just how effective calling elk can be. And you can probably see where all of this is heading. Ben Potter, who's a filming genius uh, who owns Kana Outdoors, met me at the airport in Albuquerque the day before our hunt started. Randy had driven down a day or two earlier with his cameraman, Marcus, as he had another hunt or maybe two hunts uh, in New Mexico that fall. But that allowed me to fly down for the hunt and save the extra days it would have taken me to drive down there. So Ben picked me up and we started the drive to camp. And one thing in New Mexico, you aren't allowed to camp on state land. And that meant we had to drive clear over into another unit to find a section of BLM land that we could camp on. And on the way to camp, Ben and I were passing camp after camp of hunters who were forced to do the same thing. And that just meant all of these hunters would be leaving camp early the next morning for opening morning, driving up the same roads, entering the same unit from the same place as we would. It was going to be really tough to get away from all of this concentrated activity. One thing that I really like is if I show up on a hunt and get camp set up and can hear an elk bugle from camp, it just gives an extra boost of confidence and anticipation. And, you know, as, as rare as it is, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a boost. But that wasn't the case this time. We got to camp and I was expecting to get out. We're in the Gila in New Mexico. And... I just, I expected to hear elk bugling from camp. I expected to be greeted by Randy's report of all the bulls he and Marcus had found while they were scouting the past day or two. And while he was still the same usual optimistic person he always is, his scouting report didn't include any bugling. They'd seen a few elk, but up to that point, they hadn't heard any bugles. So we still had an hour or so before it got dark uh, that night when we arrived at camp. So we just jumped in the side-by-side -side and headed up the mountain into our unit to hopefully locate some bugles for the next morning. But the mountain was silent. The heat, the moon, the number of other hunters all concentrated into that one small area, and now a lack of bugles. I remember driving back down to camp, just had a sinking feeling in my stomach that, you know, it, it was a discouraged feeling, and the hunt hadn't even started yet. There was still anticipation the next morning, but I was pretty sure this hunt probably wasn't going to be the normal Gila hunt in New Mexico that I'd always heard about and dreamt about. It was four o'clock that afternoon on opening day when we finally heard our first bugle and it took covering a ton of miles on foot but it was still opening day and we had a bugling bull a half mile below us on a really good looking ridge. So we scrambled down the mountain and got the wind in our favor and I can remember thinking that I wished the bull would be in a little more vocal. We'd got him to bugle a couple times. He'd answered my location bugles, but he wasn't bugling on his own. And as we got down there on the ridge that he was on and got to a place that looked like a good setup, uh, it was quiet for probably 20 or 25 minutes before he finally let out another bugle just up the ridge from us. The bull slowly and quietly worked his way in towards our setup on the ridge and as soon as he came into within view of where Randy was, Randy was set up in front as the shooter and I was back calling, the bull knew something wasn't right and he just left. And over the next few days things were even slower. I was pushing physically as hard as I could just to cover as much country as possible. My strategy of just covering country and finding that bull that's that's going to bugle and I thought in New Mexico it's not as steep as some of the stuff we've hunted in Idaho. 
I can cover more country, and eventually we're going to find that elk that's, that's ready to go. I just kept telling myself, it just takes one. But when we woke up on the morning of day four, uh, Randy let us know that all of the, the exertion, all the hiking that we'd been doing had triggered his liver uh, to the point that he was forced to stay in camp and recover. So he assured us that he was going to be fine. He just needed to rest and get back on top of things. So Marcus and Ben and myself set out for this deep remote area that Randy had mentioned to us. And he said he was certain no one else would ever be foolish enough to go into there. So I knew if we could get into there, then that's where we were going to find the, the elk and the elk that were ready to bugle. So it took us a few hours to get back into the basin that morning, back in that area that Randy had told us about. But it was worth the effort. It was probably close to noon, at least late morning, when we finally popped over a ridge and found what we'd been looking for, which was bugles. And not just a couple. There were multiple bulls firing off in the draw below us. And with the midday thermals coming up the hill, we were in the perfect position to capitalize on them. We had pretty decent cover as we slowly and quietly slipped down towards the bugles, but we could see a lot of cows and a few of the bulls on the hillside across from us, so we knew we had to be careful as we moved in. I also didn't want to start just calling from right there because if the elk could see the hillside we were on and they couldn't see any elk, they'd likely get a bit suspicious and probably not come into the calls. Unfortunately, as we were slipping down the hill and moving in on the bugles, we noticed that somehow there was another group of hunters slipping in on the same herd unfortunately from the wrong side and with the wind going right to the elk so within a minute that entire herd of elk moved across the canyon and onto the safety of private land where they continued to bugle but now out of reach from uh, being able to hunt it was a long hike back out of that basin in the dark and we got back to camp so late that randy was sure we must have shot an elk but we hadn't the day off, though, was what Randy needed, and he was feeling a lot better and said he was ready to go with us again the next morning. Since that area that we'd been in was the only place we'd found any kind of bugling action so far, we decided to head back in there and hope that the elk had settled down and maybe moved back onto the public land. So the next morning, we uh, made the long hike back in there and found that the elk had not made it back onto the public land. They, uh, they were bugling, but they were still well out onto the private. Uh, but as we were hiking up around the top edge of the basin, we did get a, a straggler bull that was in there to respond to my location bugle. And after some convincing, I was able to call him in, or at least called to him and then got in front of him as he worked up the mountain to his bedding area. We'd had so little action and so few opportunities so far that Randy forgot to put a call, a diaphragm call in his mouth to stop the bull. And the bull ended up walking right up through the only shooting lane Randy had at about 35 yards and couldn't get him to stop. But I'm not sure Randy would have actually given me credit for calling that bull in anyway. The rest of the day was a complete bust and we hiked out in the dark and as we're hiking out, Randy convinced me that we needed to drive out to the areas he had hunted before and do some glassing at daylight the next day. It was over on the other side of the units where he had previously hunted and had luck with glassing up elk 
and then when they bedded down, stocking in on them, and it was wide open. It was, you know, grasslands out on the flats, and then the elk would come up into these little grassy foothills where there was, you know, I would I would say no cover. There was a little bit of cover, but not not much at all. The next morning, uh, just like he said, we did spot a lot of elk, and they were way off. You know, we're spotting elk at two, three miles away. And watching as they moved out of the the grassy flats down in the bottom and up into those wide open foothills to bed down. And when I say wide open, I mean wide open. For miles, you can just see it's just rolling topography. You know, there were draws and, and some topography, but there was really no cover to speak of. And after watching the elk move across that vast open landscape for probably an hour or two, I had seen enough. I was ready to go back up and find some timber, go back up on the mountain and and start looking for one of those remote little sanctuaries where we could drop in and and hopefully get away from people and hopefully find an elk that wanted to bugle. I knew it could be done and I wasn't excited for the prospect of hiking miles out across the wide open just to have a whole herd of elk be there with all the ears and eyes and spot us and then turn and run for miles out across the flats without stopping. So it was mid-afternoon or so by the time we got back to the truck and then drove over to a spot that Randy said, well, if we want to get away from people and find something steep, this is going to be it. And we left the side-by-side, started hiking in, and it was probably getting late in the afternoon when we made it back into this basin that we were wanting to make it back into. We didn't hear a single bugle, which you know, middle of the day and with the heat like it was, wasn't the end of the world, but I still thought we should have maybe heard a a bedded bugle going in there. That high desert sun was just so hot, so relentless and just intense. And I, you know, as I look at pictures from that hunt, I was baked. We were, you know, sitting out in the sun all day, glassing, hiking, and there was really no, no escape. Even in the, even in the timber, it was open enough that it was just hot and miserable. And it seemed like where we were that day, there was no air movement at all. So that made it just like we were sitting in an oven. We climbed up on a, on a hillside where we could get a good vantage point looking across the basin and do some glassing. And each one of us kind of climbed under a different uh, juniper or pinion tree and just tried to find any little bit of shade we could and wait for, you know, the evening and the shadows to cool down and I was certain at that point when things cooled down, we were going to hear bugles. It was just too good of an area. Nobody was in there. And I remember sitting there bored, frustrated, uh, heat exhausted. And, you know, in my boredom, there's not a lot to do. So I just reached up and broke off a bunch of little branches off the tree that I was hiding out under. And then using the little pieces of twigs to form letters, I spelled out the words, I hate elk on the ground next to me and uh, I've got a picture of it Randy still brings that up to me once in a while but you know that was the level of frustration on that hunt it just wasn't going like we we hoped it would I couldn't get anything to bugle let alone find anything to call in I wasn't having fun don't get me wrong the company was as good as anyone could ever hope for but the hunting itself was it was brutal from a calling perspective I'd pretty much struck out every single day. And that night, again, after not hearing any bugles, we're hiking back to the side-by-side in the dark, and Randy stopped and very matter-of-factly said, 
you know, we can continue trying to find an elk to bugle, or we could just go back out to the open grasslands and maybe try to find an elk that's in a good position where we can attempt to stalk it. And that just, it didn't sit well with me. Now, probably more than ever, I needed to prove that I could call in an elk. You know, it seemed like the more days that went by that we couldn't get an elk to bugle and I couldn't call in an elk, it just intensified the uh, the challenge. You know, it might have been a baited challenge, but it was a challenge nonetheless. And I wasn't even sure if hunting elk with a bow and not using calls would actually be considered hunting. And of course I'm kidding, but I was struggling with that decision to leave the calls behind and change tactics. I'm sure the heat and exhaustion and frustration and everything going on that, that made that hunt tough led me to finally cave in. Had I known at the time how much more intense the sun was going to be the next day as I was sitting on a wide open hillside without even a shrub to cast a shadow to get under, I might not have agreed to go at all. But shortly after daylight the next morning, we were back there at Randy's vantage point and we were glassing and watched a, a group of bulls start making their way, you know, their predicted daily migration out from the flats up into the foothills kind of in our direction. So. The bulls kind of got behind a a ridge that was between us and them, and we thought, let's just move in, get as close as we can, maybe even intercept them, but then we can keep an eye on them and see where they bed and uh, end up moving in and trying to get a stock on them. Unfortunately, we ended up bumping that group of bulls as they came over, you know, probably 150, 200 yards away from us. They came over a ridge, and we were skylined and silhouetted there, and they saw us and took off running. And. You can probably imagine how far elk run in that open country when they get bumped, but we did notice one of the bulls peeled away from the rest of them and followed a cow up a really steep hillside and then disappeared through a saddle and out of sight on the backside of that hill. The bull and his cow had moved off in a direction that required us to completely circumnavigate the entire mountain they were on just to make sure we had the wind in our favor before we tried to to get over and actually figure out where they had went, where they had bedded down. And it took us probably an hour or so to get around and get on the backside of the mountain and get in a position where we wouldn't get winded. And I, again, I can't express just how open it was. We were standing out wide open, you know, four guys, even in camouflage, you stand out. I knew if that bull was going to be anywhere to be found, we'd have to be able to see him. That's the one advantage where you can see so far You can see down into all the little draws, unless they'd went clear over the next drainage, we we should be able to find him. We were scanning, all four of us standing there with our binoculars, and we were looking over the entire valley out in front of us there. The saddle that the bull and cow had come through was probably maybe 300 yards, 400 yards behind us, and then we were glassing everything out in front of us. And I turned around to look back up towards that saddle, and noticed something that I thought was unusual and that was a tree there was one solo lone tree just right up on the on our side of that saddle it was the only tree on the entire mountain and as I looked at the tree through my binoculars I caught movement at the base of the tree and realized that that movement was antlers and that bull had found basically the only source of shade within miles and had bedded down right there underneath that tree. 
So we quickly made up a plan and I was going to move around with Marcus back around the backside of a little knoll, keeping the wind in our favor and get up above the bowl to put a stock on it. And Randy and Ben were going to stay down where we were to watch and just make sure the bull didn't get up and move off somewhere else or get up and change positions to, to bed down. So as Marcus and I reached the top of the knoll, I slowly just peeked over and could see the bull was still bedded right there under the tree. And I think we were at that point, I don't know, 160, 180 yards from the bull and the bull was bedded facing away from us. So I knew I could use the topography and some of the randomly placed just little clumps of grass and some really low-lying sagebrush to be able to kind of give me a little bit of cover to get between myself and the bull. And then as I move towards the bull, I thought I'd be able to cut the distance probably in half. And once I got into 100 yards, 80 or 100 yards, it didn't look like I had a lot of options. So I was just my plan was to get in that close and, and see what options there were. I slipped my boots off, which I very rarely do, but uh, took my boots off and then just so slowly started slipping in. It was middle of the day, it's blazing hot, and there is no wind at all. So every little sound is, it just seemed like it was amplified. Most of the first 70 or 80 yards that I covered, I was on my hands and knees or in a crab walk kind of butt crawl where I'd raise my rear end up and scoot forward six or eight inches with my bow balanced on my lap and then drop back down into the sitting position, reposition my hands and then lift up again and slowly inch forward. It was kind of like a, an inchworm uh, inverted backwards there, but no wind. Every little sagebrush that I rustled up against made noise. The gravelly ground was, you know, crunchy. So it was hard to go very fast at all and, and not make noise. And that lack of wind also made the heat from the sun even more miserable. So I made it to uh, probably 80 or 90 yards from the bowl. And there was a little clump of grass that I'd used to position between me and the bowl. And then I kind of slid straight down towards the bowl. So, you know, I'm basically flat on the ground moving and uh, that little clump of grass, I was able to stay out of sight of the bowl. But when I got to that clump of grass, I peeked around and noticed there was a cow that was bedded right next to the bowl. That cow that he'd followed up through the saddle that morning was bedded there and she was looking straight at me. I'm not sure how I didn't see the cow until right then, but she was locked in on my position. All I could do at that point was freeze and there was no way I could move a muscle if I wanted the elk to not bust out of there. And so that's what I did. For probably 30 minutes or so, I sat there unable to move at all. My hip flexors were cramping up. The palm of my hands were burning from just bracing myself up on the sharp lava rock. Uh, my feet were numb. Legs were numb from being tucked under each other in an awkward position. And right then, the bull stood up, and I was sure it was over. I'm pretty sure he probably keyed into the fact that the cow was locked in on something. And he stood up and turned right in my direction and stared right at me, right at that clump of grass. And, you know, at 80 yards away, it, it feels like, there, well, there was nothing really between us, but it feels like you're just 
you're isolated right there and he's looking right at you. After 30 seconds or so, you know, I'm just, I, I've already felt that letdown, like uh, it's over. There's, I've been here too many times before. There's no way that bull's going to settle down. But he did. He laid back down. And when he did, the cow seemed to lose interest in me as well. And she turned her head and faced back away, uh, looking away from me. But unfortunately, when the bull bedded down, he turned and bedded down so he was facing straight at me. And I'm still stuck there in the grass. He wasn't, you know, looking at me, but his body was facing me. His head was turned so that uh, I knew if I moved, he'd most likely be able to see that movement. At this point, I'd been there for, gosh, I don't know, two hours. And I just, I was out of patience. I couldn't take it anymore. Everything was aching. You know, my muscles had all been tensed up trying not to make any movement. I didn't have any water with me. I'd left the water in my pack back with my boots and the heat was just completely unbearable. What little patience, you know, that I did have uh, up to that point had worn so thin that I just, I had to do something. So real slowly, I just kind of moved my hand and repositioned my leg and I knew the bull was going to see that movement and just bust out of there any second. But he didn't. So I repositioned my leg and kind of shifted over on my side. And there was a little patch of sagebrush, probably 15, yeah, probably 15, maybe 20 yards out in front of me. And when I say little patch of sagebrush, it's the, the sagebrush that's like, I don't know, 14 inches tall, 16 inches tall. It's not the, not the big full sagebrush that you can get behind and, you know, kind of hunker over and walk. It's just tall enough to conceal you if you stay down at ground level. But there was a little patch of that off to my right and up in front of me. And I thought if I could make it just four or five feet over to my right, it would put that sagebrush between me and the bowl and provide me just, you know, enough ground cover that I could slip up a little closer. As painstakingly slow as I could move, I would literally move one limb at a time. I'd move my foot and leg, and then my hand and my arm on the leading side, and then I'd do like this slow reverse plank and slide my body two or three inches, and then I'd pull my other leg and foot and hand and arm over, literally just inching my way sideways on that open hillside. And it probably took me 10 or 15 minutes just to move that five feet, but I finally made it, and surprisingly, the bull hadn't even lifted his head. And at that point, once I got behind that sagebrush, I was obscured from the bull's sight. And as long as I stayed low on the hillside, he wasn't going to be able to see me there behind the sagebrush. I was in open view of the cow. I could see her, but her head was turned and she was facing away from me. Now that I'd got over that five feet or so to my right, I could start sliding down closer to that sagebrush that would now at least provide some concealment. It was still mostly calm. Uh, the air wasn't moving much, but every 45 seconds or 90 seconds or so, just a little light gust of wind would pull up the hill for like five or six seconds, and then it would die back down. So every time the wind would, would just, you know, that little light gust would rustle the grass or the sagebrush, I would move. And it provided just enough cover sound that I didn't feel like I was being pinpointed every time that I crushed a little piece of sand under my hand or my you know foot brushed up against some some grass 
when the wind would blow, I would move, and when it would stop, uh, I would stop. And it took a few minutes, but I was able to get down to the sagebrush and get tucked up there behind it. And at that point, there was nothing between me and the elk. They were there laying underneath that tree, and there wasn't even clumps of grass. It was just little dry sheet grass there uh, between me and them. I just laid there behind that little patch of sagebrush. I rolled over to my side and uh, pulled up the binoculars and was watching the elk. You could see his eyes closing and opening back up, and he'd turn his head from time to time and lay it on one side, and I thought, I'll pull out my rangefinder. So I pulled out the rangefinder and uh, was surprised to realize I was at 43 yards from the bull. I was well within shooting distance, but the bull was bedded facing me, and there was no shot at all. He had his one leg out in front of him, the other one tucked back behind him, and you know there there was absolutely no vital shot exposed. So my only option was to sit there and wait for him to stand up, and then hope that when he did stand up, he'd give me a good shot angle, and that I'd be able to get to full draw without being spotted, which seemed like a pretty long shot at that point. But I waited and again, just laid there in the wide open in the blistering sun. Uh, my skin felt like leather. The sun was just relentless and as intense as I can ever remember feeling the sun, especially for that long, I was just baking. And after several more minutes, I couldn't take it any longer. I was out of patience. I was hot. I was out of water. I'd been on that same, you know, the same hillside with the elk for, I don't know, three hours or longer at that point. And I was as close as I could get to the elk. There was no way I was going to be able to draw my bow without being seen. If I even got up on my knees, I would be twice as tall as a sagebrush. And I knew that that movement was, was going to be too much. So I was as close as I could get. Uh, even if I was able to get drawn back, I didn't have a shot unless the bull stood up. And when he did decide to stand up, I doubted he would just stand there as I raised up from the sagebrush and came to full draw. So at that point, um, I, was, I was mentally at a point where I was ready to make something happen. I wasn't going to wait any longer. I couldn't, I couldn't mentally wait any longer. But no matter what option I played out in my mind, none of them gave me much of a chance of getting a good broadside standing shot at the bull. I couldn't move off to the side and get a different angle. I could hardly draw. If I drew, he would see that. And I just knew that as soon as I drew, he was going to bump up and go straight from his bedded position to a, a sprinting position. I finally decided uh, I was just going to draw my bow back, lying there in that awkward lying on my back position I was in and hold it out to the side, draw it back. And then being at full draw, I would rotate over to my side onto my hip and then push up into a, a kneeling position and be at full draw ready to shoot. And again, I knew that I could get drawn back probably and sit up. But as soon as I sat up, that movement was going to alert the bull. And being in the wide open like that, I, I just knew he was going to come out of there like he was shot out of a gun. I'd been relatively calm up to that point as I was stalking in. You know, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm getting close for a shot. I just, you know, I kept moving in slow and, and had stayed calm. But my heart really started pounding as I realized I was getting ready for a, a possible shot. And, you know, that adrenaline, no water, 
muscles all just shaking from being so tensed up and not moving and everything kind of all hit at once. And my movements up to that point had, you know, I think had been really controlled and well calculated and smooth. But now with everything, it just seemed like, you know, my vision got really uh, narrow and my movements seemed like they were jerky and uncoordinated. And I laid there and, and listened. And as soon as I heard that sagebrush start to rustle from another gust of that hot air moving up the hillside, I just jerked the string back on my bow from my lying position there on my back, trying to stay as flat to the ground as I could. And surprisingly, my bow came back to full draw a lot easier than I expected it to. And without even pausing to think about my next move or hesitating at all, I just instantly rolled to my side and up onto my knee and raised right up into a full draw shooting position. I'm pretty sure the elk were more surprised than I was uh, when I just appeared there out of nowhere. But contrary to what I'd predicted, the bull just stayed bedded rather than jumping up and bolting out of there. So I had my bow raised, you know, I came to the kneeling position, had my bow up where I thought the bull would be when he stood up. And so I had my pins locked up uh, a little higher, anticipating that he would be standing by the time I got to where the pins were on him. But when I found him still lying there, I just started dropping my bow arm and uh, dropping my pins down to, to find the bull in my peep sight. And as I'm dropping my bow arm, the bull got to his feet and, or he got his feet under him at least and started rising up. And as he came up to get on his feet, uh, he was in a full broadside standing position and I shot. But with the bull rising to stand up, and my bow arm dropping, I think my pins just continued descending right under the bull uh, as I shot, and I missed. I rushed the shot uh, rather than waiting for the bull to stand all the way up and getting my pins settled on him. I just, you know, rushed a shot. And after those hours of mustering up all the patience I could ever imagine I ever possessed, I had gotten impatient and blown that opportunity. But surprisingly, the bull just stood there, almost like he was trying to blink the sleep from his eyes to verify if he was really seeing what he thought he might be seeing. And it gave me just enough time to grab and knock another arrow and come to full draw. And right as I came to full draw, he started trotting off, quartering away a little bit. Uh, and I gave him a couple cow calls. And to my surprise, he stopped and turned back, almost broadside, quartering away a little bit. And gave me another, probably a, a confused look, just wasn't sure what it was that was right there. So I took a little more time on that second shot. And the bull ran maybe 80 yards before he piled up, just over a little rise and out of sight. But I could see a big dust cloud when he hit the ground. And I knew he wasn't going any farther. Looking back, I still can't believe it turned out like it did. I give credit to Randy, and I'm grateful that he convinced me to switch gears and spend that last day, last hunting day in New Mexico, trying a different tactic. When it comes to elk hunting success, confidence is critical. And confidence in my gear and my equipment is something I'm just not willing to compromise. And that's why I shoot a prime bow. As a mechanical engineer, when I first saw the technology Prime was designing into their bows, I was intrigued. Cam lean had always been an issue on other bows I'd shot, which made tuning the bows and ultimately getting consistent arrow flight nearly impossible. But four shots into my first Prime bow, it was tuned, and my arrows were flying perfectly. 
the draw cycle was smooth, and the back wall was solid. And they didn't stop there. In the years since I've started shooting a prime bow, they've added center shot technology, which allows the bow to lock on the target and keeps my pins from wandering around. They've also recently designed a new cam that completely eliminates cam lean that was previously caused by the offset cable design. Prime bows are continually leading the way when it comes to new technology and technology that makes a difference, not just some marketing gimmick that a marketing department can use to advertise a new model. There's no doubt that the stability of my prime bow has improved my accuracy, extended my range, and increased my confidence. To learn more about prime stability or to shoot one for yourself, visit your local bow shop or go to g5prime.com. And now, back to reaching your peak. When you find a tactic or a strategy you're comfortable with, it can be hard to change, especially when that tactic's relatively successful. And it seems like the longer that you learn to rely on that one particular strategy, the harder it is to part from it. But that's exactly what we need to do, especially if we want to extend the reach of our success and spread success across a wider range of conditions and uncontrollable factors. I'm always going to be an elk caller at heart. And given a choice to call or to stock in on elk, I'm going to choose calling every single time. But sometimes, despite how confident or arrogant we might have become, we don't really have a choice, regardless of whether we think we do or not. And the sooner we can learn to adapt to the conditions we're faced with and pick up or try out a new tactic, the better off we're going to be. We all want to experience the thrill of the rut, but it's important not to get stuck in a rut, especially when it comes to our style of elk hunting. Use what works when it's working, but if it's not working, don't be afraid to abandon one tactic and implement a new strategy. I'm sure we've all heard the classic definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. While elk hunting is absolutely a pursuit of persistence, there's a fine line between persistence and insanity. And until next time, I'll see you guys on the next ridge or mountaintop or wherever the elk are bugling. Or as it was in this case, under the only tree on the mountain where the elk might be bedded.